Hey, we've got a we've got a lot going on this morning with Memorial Day and with just uh, with the next kind of wrapping up. And so I forgot to make this uh, make this uh, known first service. I want to make sure we take care of this service. But Tuesday night, this past Tuesday night, we had nine people from Genesis come back from Haiti, and uh, they went down there and they served and absolutely just did some incredible work down there. Um, and so if, if you see someone that, that went on this trip or went on the trip in February, you, 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 uh, you owe it to yourself to talk to them about their trip. I got a privilege to hear some stories, and, um, and just, it's just life-changing. And obviously we know what, what has happened down there, and uh, it shouldn't surprise us that even though the media coverage may have moved on, there's still a great need. And so um, I'm just glad to say that, that I'm a part of Genesis, and Genesis is, is going to partner with Nehemiah Vision Ministries there on the ground. And so... Um, it's a great thing to be encouraged by, and so make sure if you have a chance, talk to somebody who is down there and, and hear some awesome stories. But as we get going here tonight, uh, this morning, open up to the First Corinthians chapter six, verse twelve. If you've got your Bibles with you, First Corinthians chapter six, verse twelve, and um, I get to bring you an incredible, incredibly encouraging, optimistic, um, just going to make you have this big smile on your face, like. You're going to drive home today, and you're just going to be in a great mood, because I get to talk to you guys this morning about addiction. You know, everybody's favorite topic, everybody's favorite thing to talk about, addiction. And so uh, this morning, as we look at that, we're going to start out in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 12. And so if you're there, uh, follow along with me. If not, you can follow along in the screens. Uh, but the Apostle Paul tells us this, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. And then he repeats it for emphasis. He says, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. I have a, I have a little bit of a shocking confession. As a teenager, uh, my parents and I didn't always see eye to eye. I know that's probably very unexpected. Uh, that's probably something that, that if you have teenagers, that never happens with you. But, but my parents and I didn't always see eye to eye. And specifically, uh, well, there's a lot of ways we didn't see eye to eye. But for this story, specifically, it was for my homework my study habits, and different things like that, especially with my dad. And my dad had a, had a standard of studying and, and homework and proofreading that, that honestly was a lot more time-consuming than what I was hoping for. And so, so dad, would, uh, dad would ask me, Josh, is your homework done? Are you ready for the test? And I'd always reply, almost always say, yeah, I know it. I'm ready. It's good to go. And, and dad would, would almost without fail tell me it's not good enough just to know it. It's not good enough just to be ready, but you have to master it. You have to master the material. You have to master the content. And, and, and for me, that was always something that kind of rung true and just kind of stayed with me. And, and, uh, and sometimes I apply it and sometimes I don't. But when I read this scripture and that, that phrase, don't be mastered by anything, immediately brought that up. Because mastered, that, the word that Paul uses here for, that gets translated as master in, in 1 Corinthians is a very strong word. In other places, it's translated as, as dominated, as controlled, as enslaved. This is, a, this is not just a, a casual relationship. This is not just knowing. This is controlling. This is dominating. This is mastering, enslaving. And so, and so Paul is telling us not to be mastered by anything, not to be controlled by anything, not to be a slave to anything. He's saying that we have freedom, but don't let that freedom turn into something like that. Addictions have a way of mastering us. If you've struggled with addiction in your life, you know someone in your life who's struggled with addiction, you know what that's like. You know how dark that is. You know how, how just controlling that can be on their life. And you know that there's a way that it kind of masters us. You also know that it's, it's hard to deal with addictions. We try, to, we try to hide our addictions. We try to minimize our addictions. We try to downplay them. 
we try to always have excuses for them. And, and since we're talking about addictions, I thought it was only fair or right to, to finally, finally share one of my addictions, to finally kind of um, be open about this. And, and you might be thinking, you know, why in the world is Josh, who last time he preached, I think he sweat, sweated through like four shirts, but why in the world would he wear long sleeves? Like why in the, it's like 85 outside, like, like everyone's going to go lay by the pool later. Like why is he wearing long sleeves? Well, I'm wearing long sleeves because I'm hiding my addiction. Um, and I, I, just, I just think I need to get this out, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be brave and I'm going to do it because my addiction is silly bands. <laughs> if you don't know what silly bands are, silly bands are, uh, are there on the picture, but silly bands are rubber bands um, that when you put them on your wrist, uh, they cut off your circulation and all that fun stuff, but, but, but they look just like normal rubber bands on your wrist. But when you take them off, they form nice little fun shapes and all this stuff. And silly bands right now are kind of the it thing. They're kind of the thing that every kid has to have. I, if you go into Gen Kids right now, you would see kids with silly bands. If you see some of our middle schoolers who are hanging out with us this morning, I bet there's some of them that are wearing silly bands. Our middle school intern, Jake Schwab, going to be a senior at Anderson University. I think he's 21, about to turn 22, wears silly bands. I mean, silly bands are kind of this it thing. And so because I've been wearing them all morning and because they're killing me, I'm going to take them off. But let me tell you a little bit more about silly bands. I was telling the, uh, my, my, my team, my, my youth ministry team, that, that I was going to be talking about this. And, and all of a sudden, they started telling me stories about how they had heard that silly bands were being outlawed at schools. That they were, the teachers and the administrators were saying, no more silly bands, we can't have them. They're too much of a distraction. And they're not really my addiction, but apparently they're a big deal for a lot of kids. And maybe you can remember what that it thing was when you were growing up. Maybe it was the, the Cabbage Patch dolls. Maybe it was, was G.I. Joe's. Maybe it was the Holiday Barbie. You might remember the Holiday Barbie. My sister always had the Holiday Barbie, and, and, and I would get drugged to like all the Kmarts and the Targets and the greater Indianapolis area looking for Holiday Barbie for my sister with my mom and my grandma. And so we would always look for Holiday Barbie. Or maybe it's uh, uh, the Furby. You remember Furbies? Furbies or, or Pogs? Remember Pogs or, or, or Pokemon or those little, little electronic things you attach to your keychain that are like a little pet, the Tamagotchis? Remember these things? They're just ridiculous. Or like the Nintendo Wii was kind of the most recent, probably it toy that you just had to have. And you know, you know how, how, uh, how cool silly bands are because they're in such high demand. You drive by CVS and, or Walgreens and they usually have a sign out there that says, we have silly bands. And, and like the demand is so high, the price is real high. But you also know it's cool because bands isn't spelled with an S. It's spelled with a Z. Bands. So it's like, so it's like Webkins or Bratz or, or for a lot, of, a lot of people my age, boys to men. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you spell with a Z, you know it's really, really cool. So... So, so in a lot of ways, uh, silly bands are kind of the next, like, it thing. They're kind of the next thing that, that people might be uh, kind of addicted to. Now, I'm not trying to say that, that all addictions are the same, that an addiction to silly bands is the same as an addiction to alcohol or an addiction to, to illicit drugs. I'm not, I'm not saying that. They have very different consequences. They have very different roads to, to kind of freedom, to kind of being, being free of those things. But I think ultimately, underneath all of this, there's kind of a similar root issue. And that's kind of what we're going to go at, go at this morning. And so I'm not trying to say that they're the same. So don't, don't get me wrong in saying that, you know, silly bands and, and meth are the kind of the same type of addiction because they're obviously not. But, but I think that all of us on some level have an addiction. Maybe yours isn't silly bands. Maybe yours is a substance of some sort. Maybe yours is a chemical. Maybe you're so addicted to this chemical that you can't function during the day, that your day hasn't really begun without this chemical. And of course, I'm talking about caffeine. 
Maybe, maybe for you, you have to have your cup of coffee in the morning. And maybe that your addiction is so severe that you have to have it in this nice prepackaged $5 uh, <laughs> you know, package like Starbucks. And you're, you're, you have to go there every morning in order to, to function. Now, now uh, all jokes aside, we know people who go through cravings and, and caffeine headaches and almost withdrawals without having uh, their coffee in the morning. Now, my wife, uh, she likes coffee. I wouldn't call her an addict by any, any stretch of the imagination. But she just kind of has a way with words sometimes. She's pretty funny. And the mornings when she doesn't have her coffee, she'll say, not all the time, but a lot of times, she'll say, if I don't have my coffee, I'm going to kill someone. <laughs> if I don't have my coffee, I'm going to kill someone. So we always make sure that, that Heidi has her coffee and has that taken care of. I don't think she would get violent, but just, just in case. But uh, I'll probably get in trouble for that later. But uh, maybe it's Diet Coke. Maybe it's an energy drink. Whatever it is, we kind of all, or not all of us, but a lot of us have an addiction maybe to, to caffeine. Well, maybe it's not a substance. Maybe it's not a substance. Maybe it's a website. Maybe you're so engrossed in the social networking sites like Facebook that you spend all your time on this. You have to know what's going on. You want to be connected. You don't want to miss out on anything. And so you're, you're plugged into Twitter and you're plugged into your blog and you just you think about all the time ways to increase your traffic and be, be better network and meet new people. Words like Farmville and Mafia Wars are constant in your, in your vocabulary. You know these games that just that just kind of suck you in online on through Facebook. You, you, you talk about how incredibly truthful and inspiring Lady Gaga's tweets are. Like, you, you, like the, these types of things are, are kind of engrossing your mind. You spend all this time here. Some of you are laughing, but I think we're laughing because we know this is true, that we can spend so much time on things like that. They just kind of suck you in. Well, maybe it's not a website. Maybe it's not a substance. Maybe, maybe it's a brand. Maybe it's a brand like Apple. Maybe it's a brand like Apple, and you have this relationship with Apple or another company, that you have this almost spiritual connection. That anything Apple puts out, anything Apple produces, is automatically better than anything on the market. And it's just genius. You can't wait for the next time Steve Jobs gets up there in his black turtleneck and blue jeans and presents to you the next gift from the gods from Apple. You just can't wait. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure this is a, just an accident, uh, but if you look at the logo... It's kind of backlit there, and honestly, the first thing I thought when I saw this is, or when I was preparing this message is, it's like the tomb, the rock in front of the Jesus tomb being rolled away, and this light is, is bursting forward, and Jesus is coming out. I'm sure that's accidental. I'm sure they didn't mean to tie that in there, but some of us have a relationship with brands, with ideas, with things that are almost an, like an addiction, that we just are so caught up into them that it gets in the way. It gets in the way of more important things. Maybe you're addicted not to, not to one of these things, but to an idea. Maybe you're addicted to worry. That you're always concerned about your loved ones. You're always concerned about the future. Maybe you're addicted to fear. The most common phrase in the Bible is not be good. It's not love, love God. It's not anything like that. It's fear not. It's don't be afraid. It's variations on that. So maybe you're addicted to that. Maybe you're always afraid of what's coming up. No matter how addiction plays out, I think all addictions kind of have a root issue. And that root issue, root issue is simply idolatry. It's simply us looking to something, a thing, an idea, a substance, a chemical, and looking at it for something that only God can, can provide. We're substituting God for this thing. We're going after that. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that, that we have freedom, that we truly can do whatever, but it reaches a point where something that started out innocent, taken to the extreme, is no longer beneficial, and ultimately 
We're mastered by it. And I think that's a form of idolatry. All through the Old Testament, one of the unifying themes is don't get wrapped up into idolatry. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first two deal with this. The first one says, don't have any other gods before me. Don't have anything before me. And the second one is very, very similar. The second one says, don't make any image to be worshipped. Don't make any idols. Maybe it would help us to substitute make for buy or use or consume. Don't buy anything that we can worship. Don't use anything that we can worship. Don't consume that. Because ultimately, when we're addicted, we're not ourselves. We're not who we're supposed to be. When we're addicted, we forget we forget who God is and what God has created us to be. Who God has created us to be. No matter what that addiction might be, if it might be as, as socially acceptable as, as, as Facebook or it might be as, as socially destructive and, and damaging as, as, as heroin, no matter what the addiction is, underneath it all, there's, there's idolatry. And when we give voice to our addictions, I think we find really, really quick that they're ridiculous. That there's kind of an inherent stupidity that we kind of have to suspend any kind of rational thinking to carry this out. That we do things that are just not normal when we get wrapped up into an addiction. Isaiah chapter 44, the prophet, gives us kind of an insight to this ridiculous nature of idolatry. And I think we can look at this and, and substitute some of the things with what we're addicted to. We can kind of plug addiction in here where he's talking about idolatry. So if you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 14, it'll be on the screens if you want to follow along. Isaiah 44, 14 says this. He cut down cedars, or perhaps like a cypress or an oak. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire, bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. He prays and says, save me, you are my god. No one stops to think, half of it I use for fuel. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on the ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Addictions cause us to do ridiculously odd, weird, strange things. This guy in this, in this story is, is cutting down a, a, a tree and half of it uses it to make a fire to cook his dinner and half of it uses it as an idol to look to for security, for safety, for salvation. And this kind of ironic moment where, where, where all this horrible stuff is going on, where we're worshiping what we are, we're burning over here, may not make sense to us. It may not connect to us. Well, maybe we have to say, are we, is it worth risking our marriage for that website? Is it, is it worth our job for that drink? Is it worth my kids' college fund for that, for that bet? Maybe we need to, to look at the fact that there in verse 20, things get so bad, he's eating ashes, he's deluded, he has no idea what's going on. And think about how addictions take us to the lowest of the low. And how in, in despite of those horrible situations where we might find ourselves doing these horrible things we never thought we would, we continue to pursue our addictions. And, and we refuse to change. I think, I think we're all addicted to something. It might be a substance, it might be an idea, but I think we're all addicted to something. And I think that addiction is really a form of idolatry. And if you get nothing else out of this morning, I hope you get this next line. That through our addictions, we are saying, God, I don't need you. Through our addictions, through our, our idolatry, we're telling God that we don't need him. We're pushing him out of the equation. God, I don't need you. 
Last week, Paul um, gave us five easy steps to ruin our lives. Something you probably wouldn't expect from a pastor. But he gave us five easy steps to ruin our lives. He talked about how we can, we can drift. We can move away from God in our faith. And Paul had some fun with it and, and kind of embraced the sarcastic side a little bit. Uh, and so I'm going to do the same. I, I'm never sarcastic, ever. Uh, I, never, I never indulge in that sort of thing. So this might be a little uncomfortable for me. But I want to, I if you would, if you'd be so patient with me, I want to look at five easy steps to become an addict. Five easy steps to become an addict. Five easy steps to continue being an addict. Number one, don't admit you have a problem. Whatever you do, do not admit that you have a problem. Deny, deny, deny. Jeremiah 3.13 says this, Only acknowledge your guilt. Admit that you rebelled against the Lord, your God, and committed adultery against Him by worshiping idols. I would say don't believe that. You have to always claim that you're in control. You have to always assure people that you are in control of your addiction and the addiction does not, has not mastered you. You have to minimize your issue. You have to qualify it. I only drink on the weekends. I only do that drug when our friends get together because that's just what we do. It's just there. Or you have to maybe embrace that classic cliche and say, I can stop anytime I want. I'm in complete control. I can stop anytime I want. Or you say, I'll stop when? I'll stop when I get married. I'll stop when I have kids. I'll stop when I graduate. I'll stop when I get this job. Whatever it might be. Whatever you do, do not admit that you have a problem. Once you've got that one down, move on to the second one. Gratify your fleshly desires. Never say no. Never say no. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16, says this. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit was contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Here, Paul is trying to tell us that what we want, our fleshly desires, kind of that addiction, that idol, is not in line with the Spirit. Well, I'm here to tell you that that's also not true. You have to tell yourself that you can't master your addiction, so you might as well give in. You have to have that defeatist attitude to say that no matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, no matter what, I can't beat this, I can't do it. You have to believe that sin wasn't annihilated on the cross. You have to believe that this battle is still ongoing. You have to believe that you are the sinner that can't change. Convince yourself that this, this sinner attitude, well, that, sin, that, that lifestyle is talked about in the Bible. The Bible says that we're all sinners. Well, this is just my way of fulfilling Scripture, so there's no hope for improvement. I might as well give in every time I'm tempted. So admit, never admit that you're wrong. Never admit that you have a problem. Always gratify your behaviors. And then number three, rationalize your behavior and make excuses. Remember, it's never your fault. Remember, it's never your fault. In, uh, in uh, Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus is calling a group of people to follow him. And, and there's three responses. And Luke chapter 14, starting verse 18, says this. But they all, like, began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. We have to find excuses for our addictions. We have to find excuses that, that will be convincing. If you're a guy, you have to say, because I'm a guy, because I have a different sex drive than a woman, mine's, mine's so much more intense, it is unreasonable for me not to cheat on my wife, to not look at that website. It's impossible for me to do that. So I have to look at pornography in order to fulfill my sex drive that's so natural. Or maybe you have a, a, an issue with, with shopping and, and consuming things, and so... You say, well, my debt is big, but it isn't nearly as bad as so-and-so. 
Or you look down the, down the street in your neighborhood and you see that your neighbor got a new car. And you say, well, my car's three years old. They gave in and bought a car, bought a new car. Why shouldn't I? Or maybe there are things in your life that really do predispose you to addiction. Things that, that are, are outside of your control that if you were responsible and wise, you would take them into account and do things and engage in practices to prevent the addiction from setting foot. But instead of doing that, you need to make excuses and say, well, my dad was an alcoholic. Then I might as well go, go ahead and do that anyway. I'm going to he- head down that road, so I might as well live it up. You have to rationalize your behavior, make excuses for what you're doing. Number four, this might be the most important. You have to keep your addiction a secret. You have to keep it a secret and don't tell anyone. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Well, I don't really want to prosper, so I'm not going to confess those sins. So you have to refuse to tell anyone, and above all else, keep it a secret. Maybe you need to get a credit card that only you know about that you can use for all your purchases so your spouse or whoever will never find out. Maybe you need a separate bank account so that when the family that you thought was going to play out one way doesn't, you can get out of there and have something to fall back on. Maybe you need to make sure that your internet history is always cleared off when you're done using the computer to make sure that no one finds out about your addiction. And whatever you do, don't let people in. Don't let people come close to you. Don't build any kind of meaningful relationship. Keep people at arm's length because if they come in, they might challenge you or discover your addiction. And then finally, number five, depend on your own power and never God's. Galatians 5.1 says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't believe that. Don't believe that you've been set free. Don't believe that, that the cross means anything. Believe fully that your addiction is so big, there's nothing you or God can ever do to overcome it. And so always rely on yourself and never turn it over to God. Allow that weight of addiction to just completely dominate your life because that way you always have something in your backpack. You'll always be ready for something. you always have that addiction with you. Being an addict or staying as one is really pretty simple. Just following these five steps. They're five easy steps even. And that, that will always be there to help you become an addict. Now, obviously that was weird. <laughs> that was a little odd for me to say those things. Maybe subconsciously I even contradicted myself in that. But... It's weird not only because I don't believe what I just said, and hopefully you don't either, but it was also weird for me because I look at those five things, those five excuses, those five steps, and I realize that in my life, I have lived those, uh, those out. I have embraced some of those in order to continue my addiction. I have done some of those things so that no one finds out about how messy my life is. I've done things to keep people from knowing. Defeating addiction is, is horribly, horribly difficult for most people. Most of us will, will hear this sermon or think about these things or be challenged by things and probably not take any action. That's the easy thing to do. For probably a lucky few, something will click and it'll be a pretty easy road to recovery. But for the majority of the people who do take this on, who do engage in this and try to, try to understand what God's freedom looks like, to try to live out Galatians 5 where it says that God wants to relieve us of the pain, wants to take that weight off our shoulders, it's probably going to be a very frustrating, a very long, a very difficult experience. It's probably going to be something that you wouldn't want to go through again. It's probably going to be something that you will have good days and you'll have bad days. You'll have relapses. You'll fall back into your old habits because addiction is, is, is something that masters us. There's a good friend of mine 
His name is Nathan. And Nathan was born with, with uh, a form of hepatitis. Hepatitis attacks your liver. And, and Nathan had this disease from no fault of his own, from no fault of his parents. He just had it. And it was much later into life that it flared up and it was discovered. And at the point that it was finally discovered, the, the disease was so just so consuming his body that the only real option that was before him for life was a liver transplant. So he went on the, liver, the transplant list. If you've known anyone who's done this, you know this is a very long process. It's a very hard process. And so as Nathan is waiting on the transplant list, kind of waiting to get sick enough to get, a trans, get an organ, but not sick enough to die, he's always fighting the disease, and he's always fighting the medicine that's trying to keep him alive. It's this horrible, horrible situation where he's just always, always sick. And during the process, he, he had developed a, a, a leg wound. There was some sort of procedure or, or different things that, that he had a leg wound. And he was so sick that his body wasn't able to heal it. His body wasn't able to close this wound up. And so obviously, they're very concerned about infection. They're always concerned about keeping it clean. But it's because his immune system was so depressed, he wasn't really able to, to, to do anything about it. It just remained open. And so he was in the hospital, and, and they were trying to come up with an idea. And they finally came up with a plan to send Nathan home for a while. And the plan was is that Nathan was given this special bandage that he would have to change daily. He had to put a fresh one on. But this bandage would, would, would be wrapped and it would, it would adhere to the infected parts of his leg. It would adhere so much so that every day when he had to remove it, when he pulled it off, he would literally pull portions of his skin off as well. An incredibly horrifyingly painful experience. Whenever he talks about the transplant and talks about the recovery and is able to share this incredible story about how God healed him, he tends to come back to the story as one of the more painful, darker moments of the whole ordeal. He talks about how there are moments where he didn't think it was worth it. That he thought, maybe I can get by without this leg. I can get by with a prosthetic. He would have moments where he couldn't change it himself. He would have to call a friend over and, and they would have to change the bandage for him. And he always talks about how horrible that experience was. I think that's a great analogy for battling addiction. That as we encounter addiction, as we encounter the truly dark stuff, the truly idolatrous nature of ourselves, there's going to be moments where it's going to be painful. There's going to be moments where we feel like we're ripping part of ourselves out. There's going to be moments where it doesn't make any sense. There's going to be moments where we question whether or not it's really worth it. Is it really worth it to go through with this? Is there really a good ending here? There's going to be times where we're going to have to rely not only on God, but on other people to come alongside us and walk with us through this whole process. The whole thing about fighting addiction, the fighting idolatry, the reason that's so focused on in the Old Testament, the reason that Paul devotes time to this is that it's so serious, it is so, so strong in our lives, and it can only be defeated by the cross. So there has to be a point where once we realize what the end is, we realize that God wants to set us free, where we have to put words to our addiction. There has to be a point, like what Paul said, where we realize that the thing that we once had freedom to do has gotten to a point where we are now mastered by it, and we must take action to do so. And by speaking it, maybe we realize just how ridiculous our addiction is. Maybe we realize how, how, how down and how far into it we have gotten. Of course, this is an incredibly hard thing to do, to put words into it, to confess to another person. There's all kinds of anxiety and fear of being judged. And, and with, but without admitting the problem first, without putting words to it, without confessing, we'll never really find freedom. 
I think we've all been a part of friendships, of relationships, of, of small groups, of connection groups, of Bible studies, of Sunday school classes, where all the conversation, all the time of prayer for one another remains at the surface level, where there's really not much depth to it, where it's really not much, not much true confession in that moment. And sometimes that's not the proper venue. But other times I believe that people are holding back out of fear. I think that, I think that we can all look back and realize that it's usually, the tone is usually set by whoever goes first, whoever shares first in that prayer time. If that person stays at the surface level and just speaks to things that are, that are important, but not truly in need of prayer in terms of, a, a, if I don't get prayer for this, I'm not going to make it on my own. Maybe it doesn't even apply to their lives. So if, we, if that person who goes first gives that kind of thing, the tone is usually set. And everyone who follows kind of gets in line with that. But if the person who goes first truly shares what's on their heart, truly shares what's going on, that tone is set. And all of a sudden, everyone in the room realizes I'm not alone. I'm, realizes that I'm not alone in this. And, and yeah, I'm scared of this too. That maybe by going first, we give someone else the gift of going second. By maybe going first, we give someone else that gift of going second. If, if, if I'm asking you to do this, I, I need to do this myself. And so, yeah, silly bands aren't my addiction, but I do have an addiction in my life. And my addiction may not have the consequences that your addiction has. My addiction may not involve the things that mine does. I'm not going to end up in jail for my addiction. I'm not going to find myself in a, in a place like that. But my addiction is, is, I believe, is just as dark as any form of addiction, any form of idolatry. Because ultimately, my addiction causes me to forget who God created me to be. My addiction is, is even sometimes socially acceptable. It's even seen as, as okay. And, and my addiction is still a crippling thing. And if I look at every sin issue in my life, it usually is a, kicks off with this addiction. That that's where it starts. That my addiction is that I'm simply consumed by praise, by pride, by what other people think about me. That I'm so consumed by how people view me, that I allow it to dictate what I do and how I act and how I live. I'm so wrapped up in my reputation amongst you all that I forget the reputation I already have from God. I forget how God sees me. I worry about how you see me. And when this addiction gets really, really entrenched, when this gets really, really bad, the moment I have a negative criticism, the moment I think that maybe I'm losing standing in someone's eyes, I tend to spiral pretty far down. I tend to reach a point where I'm incredibly apathetic, where I'm incredibly uh, lacking motivation to do anything. I'm rather despondent. And, And I tell you this, knowing that part of me is looking for praise that I'm sharing this. I tell you this not to... um, not to elevate myself, not to exaggerate, not to do anything like that, but I tell you this to say that you're not alone. And that if we're honest, we all have addictions that may not end up in jail or may not require rehab, but we all have addictions. And those addictions are ultimately ruining our lives. They're preventing us from being who God wants us to be. Ultimately, living in our addictions is an act of idolatry. Replacing that thing in front of God. Paul writes that line in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, telling the church that they have freedom, but they can't be mastered by anything. 
We need to look at what has mastered us and ask, how in the world is that better than God? Is that really more important than God? What does it have that God doesn't? How could this thing, this substance, this idea, this idol be better than God? When we're addicted, we are not who God wants us to be. We're incomplete. We're incomplete. So from here, what's the next step? I believe that the next step probably is some act of confession. That you do need to put words to it. That you do need to to verbalize what it is to someone that you trust. To to maybe your spouse, to a close friend. Maybe to a connection group or, or a group of people that you get together to pray with. Or maybe your addiction has such damaging consequences that not only do you need to confess, but you need to seek out professional help. That you need to take steps today. That you need to ask someone to walk alongside you. You need to go first so someone else can go second. But probably the thing that you most need to do, the most pressing need in the face of your addiction, the most, the most desperate act in the face of your idolatry, you already know what it is. You already know exactly what you need to do. Because right now, if you're engaged, if you're thinking about this, there's one thing that, you're gonna, that you are right now are refusing to do. There's one thing that you don't want to do. There's one person you don't want to tell. I think that that's probably what you need to do. I think that that's probably God pushing you in that direction. I don't want to say that this is what God's saying, but, but ultimately I think our addictions are kind of like a virus, and they're going to do whatever it takes to survive. And they're going to use that fear, that guilt to survive. But ultimately we need to walk down that road that's very hard, it's very difficult, but realize that at the end there's freedom. So we need to start there with confession, We need to start there by admitting that we have a problem. We need to go back to those five steps, flip them on their head, and realize the first thing we need to do is admit that we have a problem. To name what has mastered us. See, God wants to set you free from your addiction and your idolatry. And reaching that freedom is going to look different for all of us. Reaching there, reaching that destination is going to be hard, it's going to be long, it's going to be frustrating. But the end result is always the same. Because when God looks at us, He does not see our mistakes or our addictions, but who we could be, who we were made to be, who we were created to be, who He created us to be. And as much as we might believe the lie from our addictions, it's not the addictions that get the last word. It is not what we do when no one's looking that gets the last word. Ultimately, it's God who gets the last word. And ultimately, God's saying we don't have to be enslaved or mastered anymore. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for moving in a a way, for challenging me to to share. Not so that I can receive praise or or be seen as better, but but so that I can get that out. Father, I I thank you that, um, that you challenged me and hopefully challenged other people with this message. Lord, I pray that your spirit is, is present, is working on some people to do some things that they really don't want to do. And Lord, that you would provide uh, places of safety, places of trust, where they can do those very things. Father, we ask that, that Galatians 5.1 can become real. That we can realize, that we can take to heart that you want to relieve us of the burden, of the weight. And Lord, as we look at, at addictions, may, may we realize that that's just idolatry. And that whatever we're trying to get from that thing that we can ultimately get a much more perfect version from you. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.